Today on the Rebel Matters podcast, I speak with Martin Conroy from Woodside Farm Free Range Pork. Hold on to your seats. I first got to know Martin at the Douglas Farmers Market, which is on every Saturday from 9am to 2pm in Douglas. Martin and his family run Woodside Farm Free Range Pork and serve the very best of pork products, as well as delicious hot food at the Farmers Market every week. Over the years, I've had many chats with Martin about farming, sustainability and the food industry. These conversations really influenced my relationship to the food that I eat and got me interested in the slow food movement. I attended a couple of slow food lectures in the Ballymaloo Cookery School, something that I would recommend for anybody to do. After that, I started to volunteer on the farm of the Ballymaloo Cookery School one day a week, which basically involved heading down there on a Wednesday morning and helping with whatever was on the to-do list at the farm that day. It was a great way to learn about organic farming, gardening, and the whole approach that they have to food down there in Ballymaloo. In a way, it was a major turning point for me and my thoughts on food as it relates to our long-term health. These days, we place so much emphasis on what we eat in terms of the macronutrient makeup of the food, how many carbs, fats and proteins does it contain, but we're all but totally disconnected with how the food is produced in the first place. Who's making a living from the money that you spend on the food and who really makes the profit at the end of the day? How we eat is something that is totally ignored and the welfare of the animals that we're eating or the workers who produce the food is something that we don't even consider anymore really. By and large, the health benefits of eating a meal around a table with friends or family compared to the long-term health benefits of eating the exact same meal by yourself at your keyboard as you're kind of trying to squeeze a lunch in on a busy day. These are all things that are absolutely essential to health as far as I'm concerned. But have been pushed into the background in a world where profit, convenience and fast food have all become the norm. So I wanted to chat to Martin because I believe that if you want to know about food and are interested in helping people to be healthier or even in personal long-term health, then you have to learn from those who farm the land and produce the food. We can't rely on the information that we get from the marketing efforts of the big companies for our nutrition advice. They're mostly concerned with making bigger profits at the end of the year without real regard with the food quality, long-term health of the consumer, the environment, or the welfare of the animals or the workers. It was a really insightful conversation for me, and if you work in the area of health, whether it's in personal training, strength and conditioning, the food industry, or in healthcare, this episode is absolute gold. If you're interested in becoming healthier and creating a sustainable local economy, or if you've thought about moving into the countryside or want to learn about how you can eat in a way that provides real value for money, enhances your health and the health of the land, then this podcast episode is for you. The topics that we cover in this interview are extremely closely linked to our approach to food that we promote at Ackley. Instead of crash dieting or calorie counting, we value eating quality food and creating simple habits that give you the most bang for your efforts. Drinking two to three litres of water a day, making space for a good breakfast, bringing a packed lunch to work or college, and cooking a dinner are all cornerstones of our nutrition approach. So is eating locally and eating together. And this is a big motivation for our Lone More project, which entails a regular long table lunch at the gym in Ackley. We provide a seriously long table and upwards of around 30 people all bring a dish each and together we share, eat and enjoy the food. It's a totally free event 
and all you have to do to, to get involved is to bring a dish along. To me, the Loan More project is one of the most important things that we've done at Ackley as it represents the things that we value the most about health, nutrition and food. The next Loan More long table lunch is on Saturday the 27th of January at one o'clock if you're listening to this at the time of release. You can also see all the details and how to get involved on our website www.acli.ie that's A-C-L-A-I.ie and if you're interested in starting on some personal training you can also book an appointment for a complimentary consultation on the same website A-C-L-A-I.ie Now let's get stuck into the conversation with Martin Conroy How long has the farm been going? Uh, we bought the farm 15 years ago. 16 years ago in June, next. What were we doing before we got into the farm? <coughs> uh, I left school in 1984, 15 years old, and I became a mechanic apprentice. Noreen was a chef. And uh, she did two years, or yeah, two years I think in Birmingham. And sugar craft and kind of advanced stuff. And she came back and uh, we got married. Bought a house. Had five kids. And uh, Maureen's from family background and she was never happy living in a terraced house in, in the village. So uh, she was always driving the roads looking for land to buy. And... Uh, I used to go out and I used to look at a place and I was thinking, there's too much money, it's, it's, no, it's this, it's that, it's the other she, she brought us over to this, where we are now, and I walked the whole place, and I got a good vibe off it, and I said, right, we'll do it. And were you working as a mechanic before then? Yeah. I was working, I was maintaining a fleet of trucks, I started in 1998 and I finished it in 2010. And did you, you didn't have any farming background before then, did you? No, I used to hang around with a dairy farmer's son, or a beef farmer's son. Um, I used to play on the farm, but I never actually had any experience of farming or, no, just to, just to play around the farm. That was about it. So would it have been like a fairly big jump to get from being a mechanic to being a farmer? Um, it was, but we took small steps. We took small steps. Um, it was all grass, and we, we just... The first year, the grass grew and the neighbour looked for the grass for hay and he took it. And the second year, um, Noreen wanted to get a few pigs, so she got two pigs and we, we pinned them in. Then she got a boar. And within, within, I don't know, a year and a half, when we'd exhausted all the friends and family of you know, people buying pork and half pigs and that, um, we were stuck with about 20 pigs. Finished, over finished, and uh, I went to the market one day, and Doreen was there, and Noreen, Noreen, Noreen was shaking, going up to talk to Doreen because she saw her as an icon, which she is. <coughs> so she looked around and she said, "Look, I'm Noreen from up the road, and we have pigs, we saddlebacks, and um, we're just stuck with the pigs. And um, would there be any way of what did you suggest?" So Doreen's attitude was. Um, butcher a couple of pigs, make some bacon, bring it down and we'll go through it, which Noreen did. So the bacon took a bit of... That took time. 
So we didn't want to use masses of preservatives and masses of nitrates and whatever. So um, we got the rashes fairly bang on. And uh, Noreen started in Middleton Farm. She actually started in the old Douglas Farmers Market by the community centre one week and then Doreen rang her and said there's a place for her in Middleton. <laughs> so she went into Middleton and she was sold out in the first hour and a half. So we had to hold back pigs then and we're we're we're, we're still trying to catch up. You know, we've we've forty four souls now I think. And uh, we're still just about just about maintaining the level. You know, we, we don't have excess pigs, we don't have excess stock. It's um it's working. And you know. did you just have to build renovate the house on the land at the same time when you were when you took yeah, over the farm? Myself and Orion and five kids, we moved into a mobile home. And we were there for <coughs> we were there for four winters. Um <coughs> we put a forty foot container on Orion's father's farm, filled it with all the kids' toys. And most of them are still there. The kids, they just didn't need toys. When they arrived at the farm, they were off out <coughs> climbing trees. And it was a different, they didn't need any toys. You know, they just disappear off down the wood, looking at stuff. And you know, they, they learned to drive tractors when they were eight, nine years old. They can all drive mini diggers. They're all, you know, <laughs> they can shoot a rabbit, skin it, butcher it. Throw it into a bit of milk overnight and cook it up the next day. They are, you know, they're good. They're not good food from this year. They're not bad food from this year. I don't think they've ever been. I don't know if they've ever actually been in the Lexus subway or any of those things. But yeah, so we moved. We had a choice to make. We had a, a, a pre-famine cottage and we had a, a barn. And uh, the the roof and the the cottage was almost sixty foot long. The roof and the barn was thirty odd. And uh my uncle came over from Kilburn, he's a carpenter and he just said, Lads, if it's the cost you're looking at, I'd go for the bam. It's gonna be easier to heat, easier to roof. So we did that and uh it took us five years. To renovate the barn and the yeah. house. Yeah, yeah. Make a house out of the barn, which is what we did. So uh, we used all lime and hemp and there's no concrete on it. And uh, the window heads are from an old pier that they go to New Ross, just 300 years in the water. And uh, we got that playing down into timber window heads and those old style with sash windows in it and all that like but How did you get the, the work with all the renovate the house that, that way? Did you have to research the how to, what materials to use? And yeah, we, we, we went to a couple of shows in Birmingham um, talking to people like... And all them people haven't a clue. There's a lad up the country, he uh, he sold us lime and we ended up hacking it all off the wall. It was very poor quality. So uh, we met a lad in Birmingham who does lime and hemp and renovating all buildings. And uh, we, we followed his instructions and we met a lovely Philip Lone Yall. He's Hugh Dorn, he's his name. He brings in proper lime from France building line and uh, we got the hemp above in Port Leash and plastered it onto the walls and Did you do a lot of work a lot of the work yourselves? We did all ourselves. Did you? Yeah. I and made the front door. Did you? Yeah. 
<laughs> they know to make the front door. It was four, nearly five foot wide. And people wanted to put panels in and all that and make small doors out of it. And Orange just said no. So I was there one, I think it was, the lads wanted to be in for Christmas and we had no front door in the house. And uh, I was inside in the house one evening and I just said, look, it can't be that hard. Like, So I just got some got some floorboards and uh, double panelled them out, out of, I don't know, sandwiches, a bit of ply inside and that. Planed it off and screwed it up and went the door. It's still there. It's still there. <laughs> Fifteen years later. And what made you just go down that route instead of just like just doing it the the regular old get concrete, do it up nice and fast, the same as anybody else? Um I wanted something I could heat with one stove. And I've asthma, so um I didn't the whole the house we had before that, it was all uh, concrete. And you used to have the black mould and the whole lot. And my chest was in an awful state all the time inside the house. So uh, I went down the road to the line. The line maintains the, the lime and hemp, four inches of hemp on the inside the wall, so it, it creates a dry environment. Nothing grows on it. You won't have any fungal growths or anything. And uh, the air was constantly clear. So, uh, yeah. We just stuck sheep's wool up on the roof. Eight inches of sheep's wool. So it's all natural. It's kind of more a, a traditional style of building than yeah. more modern. Yeah, it's stone. Rubble stone came. It came from uh, the wood next to the house. There's a slope down the hill and uh, there's a huge big hole there. And that's where they dug the stone for the house. You know, so there's nothing yeah. there. Like, you know, they, 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 they just... That was it. I don't know. It's, it's pre-famine. They built a barn before they built a house. Did they? And the house is pre-famine, so that house could be, I don't know, late 16, 80, 16, 90, I don't know. Back then, they probably would have been bringing the animals into the house for history. Oh, yeah. We, the, the last people left there in 1969, I think. And uh, they still had the rings on the wall for the halter, for the, for the cows. They were there. The stalls were there. We had to dig the stall. There was a cobblestone floor. We had to dig the cobblestone floor up. So we wanted to go down to get a bit of height inside the house. And, uh, yeah, the, the upstairs had a loft into the back of it. So uh, for carrying the straw and the feed, and people lived up there, you know, people, farm workers. They heated the cattle and they went to it, heat the floor, and they'd, they'd live up, uh, upstairs. They'd live together? Yeah, yeah. And what would, a, what would a typical day be for you now? Um, our handiest day is Monday. Uh, Monday we'd generally just move move pigs if we've boars to go to our sows to go to the boar or pigs weaned we wean our pigs at eight eight or nine weeks depends on the sow sometimes the sows at seven weeks old she'll just say lads I've enough and she'll lie on her belly so when you wean them does that mean you take them away from the the mother yeah yeah, yeah. like commercially they're weaned at 21 21 days and they're fed milk replacer our pigs are taken out to seven, eight, nine weeks. Um, so on Monday is generally the day that we would we just walk the sow out of the field. And uh, she's there, she could be two months, another two months before she'll go to a boar, get a bit of condition back in her. It could be three months. And uh, so that's Monday, Tuesday. Like we said, we were feeding the pigs and they were moving wire and just keeping things tidy. Tuesday then, 
The pigs are slaughtered on Mondays every week. So um, Tuesday then the pigs are um, released by the Department of Agriculture Vet. The halves. So we bring back the, the carcasses. And Noreen and Matthew, my son, who works at home, he'd, uh, they'd butcher the pigs. Um, but do they have to get sent away to slaughter? Yeah. To the slaughter yeah. They're slaughtered f- five miles down the road in a, a small slaughterhouse. What I like about it is they're slaughtered one by one. It's not a production line. It's one man does the whole thing. He walks the pig in to the slaughter area. So the pig is stunned. The pig falls through a false wall into the next next room, which is a, like a clean room. But the pig is bled. Then he eviscerates the pig, washes down the area, clears the carcass into the, co- the pre-chill, and he goes back out and gets another pig. So I've seen this working. It's the pigs honestly do not know what hit them or what's coming. There's no stress involved. Mm. The same for the cattle. Okay, we spent a day down in the Hammersleys. Yeah. Abbot Hort down in Tipperary. It was, it was like some sort of a zen experience. It yeah. was so quiet. You couldn't even, you weren't even allowed to speak. No. And the cows were there. They didn't yeah. know. No. They, they seemed to be very calm. No. Because yeah. it's in everybody's interest. I mean, look, we've spent, by the time we put, if we put a board to a sow today, and that pig, goes in pig and she has young it's 14 months before we'll at least 14 could be 16 months before we'll have a finished pig from that interaction ready for the market so we've taken all that care for that pig so that pig has to be treated properly you know and that's that's I fully believe that that is the way it should be so 14 months what's that in comparison the commercial um Pig farm. Oh, they're not. They're getting two point three liters out of a sow every year. We are getting, I don't know, half that. So would they be would they be ready to bring the pig say to the shop after seven months or something or four and a half four and a half months? So, yeah. so nearly three times. Yeah. Less. Yeah. Yeah. So we the pigs we have we've we've uh, we had glass and roll spots and we had saddlebags. It's all saddlebags now. The last survey they had for pedigree registered saddlebacks in the world was there's 503 odd left sows. And we have 44 of them. So it's, we're doing two things. We've an old breed pig that has, that gene pool is there. And when it's gone, it is gone. It's there, it's no longer there. There's less saddleback sows than there is giant pandas. You have about eight percent of the yeah the yeah. whole population in the world yeah almost ten percent and we've um, there's one bloodline we have at home and like male bloodlines are named and female bloodlines are named so if you have a Rajabor and you have a Gamma sow and they mate the litter from that the males follow the name of the father which is a Raja and the females are Gamma so. The Gamma line, there's, I think there's six or seven sows left in the world, and uh, we have them all, which is not right. That's you know, between foot and mouth, and it's not cheap to keep a pig outside. You know, they, they, they eat more, they'll eat multiples of what the pigs inside in a, a factory farming unit will eat. Because they're active, they're running around, they're playing, they're messing, they're 
So whatever they eat, they burn it off. But they build good muscle. Yeah. And you have to try and catch them then? Well, they're, they're almost feral. I mean, they do their own thing. We don't, when they're born, we don't break their teeth. We don't castrate them. We don't knock their tails off. And would they be practices that you would find in? They're common practices. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's common. You know, they cut the tails off so they want, to, they want tail bite. They still do tail bite, you know, because they're kept in the confines of a place that they have nothing else to do. So they see a little tail moving and so they have no bite off of that. <laughs> and it eventually draws blood and then it's not nice. You know, it's a big problem, but we don't have that. And so go ahead then about the week you were on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, so Tuesday I do Wilton Farmers Market. Matthew and Alan or Matthew and Noreen are at home. So they're doing the butchering. So uh, they'll break the pigs down into joints, you know, whatever loins are there for curing, bellies for curing, whatever, that's all for the for the week. So the fresh pork sold on Thursdays is pork from Monday. The bacon can take two weeks to cure. So that's two weeks ahead all the time. Um, so that's Tuesday. So the pigs still have to be fed. You know, life goes on. I do Wilton, farmer's market. Um, Wednesday then, it's our second busiest day of the week. So the pigs are fed. Um, I have to go and get feed. I go twice a week. Um, Noreen and Matthew then are getting ready for market, so that's, they're down to the stage of packing joints, pack, slicing bacon, packing bacon, and uh, roasting a pig for Thursday. For the pulled pork? Yeah, for Thursday. So uh, that pig is, I don't know, 24 hours before he's put on. Roasted for 16 hours. And... Uh, that's ready then for Thursday. Like does that pulled pork, um, does that kind of require around the clock no, attention or what no. way? What way it's do in you? A roast, it's in a roast. Or it's not one of these rotary jobs. It's like a big long trough, a steel trough. And uh, the pig goes in on its haunches and it's just put in at about 100 degrees. So the fat slowly renders off and you're left with pork. There's no fat in the pork left, it's gone. So I left them with the pork and the de- deconstructs. So you can just grab pieces and they fall apart. Yeah. So that's that's Wednesday. Thursday morning then it's start about half four. And uh, I go to the load up, go to the bakery, up to my end point for seven o'clock. And uh, myself and Matthew will be there. Noreen will drop the kids to school. She'll feed the pigs. Um, or if my other son Martin's at home and he's not working, he walks in the airport. If he's not, if he's off that day, he'll feed the pigs. Nor he'll come up, normally around half eleven. Work gets busy, and uh, flat out then until about half two. Rip it all down, back home, and that's Thursday. Go to the bay. Friday is more like a Wednesday. We have two more markets. So I'll Friday feed the pigs, do a school run, maybe collect feed, get ready for the market, load up. Um, Saturday then is another half hour start. There's two markets. Back That's uh, Middleton and Middleton Douglas. Douglas Farmers Market. So back home then at about half four, rip down, throw all the stuff that needs washing out and I load up for Tuesday. And I'm only in bed for seven o'clock Saturday evening, eight o'clock. Just so tired. And uh, Sunday morning then it's depends on what's to be done. 
some days it's busy, some days it's not. Um, so pigs have to be fed. If there's a pig, you know, after farrowing, she has to be looked after and make the young, the straw plough. The winter time then is Sundays is straw. Wednesdays is putting out straw for the bedding into the arcs. And Sunday then it's Noreen looks at the weather forecast for the week, and if it's a good dry week, that'll de- that then will determine on how many pigs are killed that week. So the pigs are loaded on Sunday afternoon. They're taken down to Morphy's in Middleton. Well, they're put into a, a small little shed. They all have their own. There's about 10 sheds down there. And they go in and uh, they're slap marked. The paperwork is put in for Monday. So they're, they are fed on Sunday, but they're fasted then. So they fast until Monday morning for the vet inspects them and they're slaughtered for the week and on it goes again. And you do it all again? So that's 51 weeks of the year. <laughs> yeah. But it's uh, good. It's a full, like, family affair, really. Like you... Yeah, if, uh, if it was just me and Lorraine, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. Just, it was just, you know, it's... it's um, everybody has their piece to do and everybody does it. It works. And is it early mornings every morning when you're yeah. down there? What time? I'm not, they're at half six every morning. So Monday's half six, Tuesday's half five, Wednesday's half four. Or no, Wednesday's half five, six o'clock. Thursday's half four. Friday's what half six. Saturday's half four. And uh, Sunday dinner's whatever time. And see, when you say feed, like you're going to feed the pigs, yeah. that's something that has to be done every day. Oh, yeah. Is it, but so how, how long does that take? Is it like two hours? Two, two and a half hours. How do you do it? Is there just this place you just leave the food? No, and no, they the, get it or? The, 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 we feed them uh, wheat and barley. So the small pigs are fed twice a day. The breeding stock are fed once a day. So uh, they go out with a tractor, box up in the back of it, buckets. And we know how much each pig will get. Like They're not ad-libbed all the food. The food is, is there for them. So if we found if you feed a pig once a day, it's too it's too long to um, leave them for the next feed. So when they do eat, they eat a huge amount and they get fat. So if they're fed twice a day, they they eat, and they know another feed is coming in not so a long time. So they they eat it slower. Yeah, so, they don't uh, stuff themselves. They don't stuff themselves. Whereas if they eat once a day, they eat a huge amount, lay down a lot of fat, and then they're just accelerating the the fat. And so. Um, there was enough fat on the pigs when we were finished with them, you know, there could be, you know, 16, 18 mil of fat, which I think is good. And uh, how many pigs have you got all together? I don't know. There must, we've never actually counted them. <laughs> <coughs> no, we have a fair idea in our head. You know, there's 18 there, there's 26 there. I don't know. Something around 400, I suppose. Maybe. Yeah. 350 that way, you know. And there's uh, the... Does do the, the big massive supermarkets around that does, does that affect the farming industry? Like when you're when you're working the way that you, you guys are working? No, no, we don't sell to any supermarkets. We just sell direct to the public. So we use the supermarkets as um, as a gathering point. Like all the farmers' markets are next to a shopping centre, so. They like us being there because we draw a certain amount of people there. So we like being there because it's like a, 
it's not love hate it's kind of like a symbiotic thing where we're there so we're in a place that people meet but we also use that place so people can park and it's it's like a social thing a lot of the farmers markets are a huge social thing you know people are I know people are habitual but people arrive there whether it's snowing sunshine rain they're going to be there yeah, we've had a crowd from the gym going down there say every Saturday for the last four years yeah it's it's you know if you can get to a place where you can meet up with you so ask them hard questions and get the answers you want you know and support a fellow that's doing things out of the norm you know if you flew over our farm there's horses and cattle all around us and then there's us in the middle and we have green huts and pigs rooting and you know it's you won't see it everywhere you won't see it anywhere you know that's so I honestly think that there should be a woodside farm in every town in Ireland but the it's a huge risk it's a huge amount of work and the setup costs are frightening so is it hard to compete with the bigger like mass producing um, sort of factory farming we don't ever want to compete if we, if we have to go to the point where we're competing with them we're lost you know we, we don't have to we're doing something like if you can I'm not trying to knock fam, f- factory farming but it has its negatives we don't have any slurry problems our pigs urinate straight into the soil they defecate on the soil where it dries up, the crows pick it, and it's it's gone. There is no, like within three days there's no sign of any pig dung. It's gone. The worms drag it down. What, what, what we, when the pigs when the pigs are finished with the field, we'll either get them to slaughter or we'll close off the wire and leave it come back, level it off. We've had grass as green as you'll ever see from the dung and like from the the, the, the the nitrogen and the urine goes straight into the ground it's not lost it's it's captive it's captive inside the ground so the, the, throw a bit of seed in the ground roll it you'll have silage as good as you'll ever see so we just well, but the point I'm making is that we've our input costs are pig feed and labour that's our main input costs we don't have any gas bills for heating sheds we don't have any huge bills for slurry control we've none of that so our costs are labour costs and they're high and our feed costs are high because we choose not to feed medicated feed we don't have to we don't want to we don't have to feed heavy metals inside the feed so we don't have to give them a concoction of grub that when they're lying down they're growing muscle but all pigs eat a huge amount of feed, getting to 100 kilos. So, on a cost basis, we couldn't we couldn't even dream of competing with the supermarket bacon, you know. Like when you see the size of the queue that you guys have at the farmer's market, like the taste probably speaks for itself. But if someone comes up to you and says, like, oh, why should I come and buy this pork over just going into the supermarket and buying rashers that are probably less expensive? Yeah. Well, look, it, it it used to happen a lot when we started, but our sausages haven't gone up in price in ten years. But what we have done is 
I mean, if, if we were to sit down, which we have done, and work out the, the labour costs of making sausages, we use natural casings, they're not cheap. Um, our sausages are 90% pork, which is not cheap to make. Like what would a regular sausage and off the shelf would probably be like 50% or something like I've that? I've seen them between 45 and 70. Um, so ours are 90% pork. And so they haven't changed in, in price. But when a person does come up and say, how can you charge four euros for a bag of sausages? I'll say, look, what are you comparing it to? That's the first question I'll ask. That normally knocks the window out of their sales straight away because they didn't have to go and tell me what they're comparing it to. So either they're, they don't have enough knowledge to continue the conversation or they know they're bait. So, uh, <coughs> yeah, I don't, we don't get that anymore. But, um, yeah, I mean, once, look, it's the same with the burger. We, we're, we're putting a few cattle through the market now and... Uh, we're hanging the beef for 30 days. Like the last beef we had at the markets yesterday, because of the storm, that was hanging for 40 odd days. Like, And like people come up and they say, six euros for a burger. They said, yeah. It happened once. And one fellow said, I like my burgers. And if I'll, I'll give you six euros if that burger is a good burger. And I said, no problem. So I cooked him a burger. It's on a good brioche bun, which we're paying a premium for. Supporting a local small bakery. You know, it's the best of ingredients in Ireland. So I gave him that burger and he went off and I, I was watching him eating it and he came back and he said, my dear man, he said, that is the best body burger I've ever eaten in all my life. And he's back every week, you know. So if you, people buy into the story, they buy into the, the product you know, they, 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 they went into the whole thing. But if at the end of the day, they see you still as too expensive, they will not support you. So we are, like we try to aim at a price point so that that item is around four euros or five euros. So that if they get two of them, they'll still have change over 10 euros. Whereas if you go to the point where you're seven euros and they get two, they're breaking at 20. And that's, that's the way I feel. If I feel I'm breaking at 20 for something that, it's gone in five minutes. I'll it's great, but like it's it's too expensive. You know, that's the way I look at it. Yeah. You know. You mentioned something there that I was gonna ask you about anyway, but the about the soil. Yeah. And I've heard people talking about that the quality of the soil overall is like being damaged. And I was interested to ask you how that would actually affect the end product or the consumer side of a product. Well, from our point of view, you know, if you if you soil and you're if you to keep taking from that soil. So if we were growing a crop to feed the pigs, for argument's sake, we were using stubble turnips every year in the same field. So we'd plant turnips. The pigs would go in, they'd eat the turnips. And then come the spring again, we'd plant more turnips or we'd plant kale. You can't keep taking. So what we would do, like we don't, we're not taking from the ground. We're buying, we buy the, 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 the feed, the wheat and the barley that we feed the pigs locally. So that is coming into our, into our business, into our farm. We're bringing that in. We bring in straw. 
from another farmer. So that's coming into the farm. So the pigs eat that. They eat the straw. The pig will, if the, if the straw is, it gets a bit damp inside the hut, they'll eat it. They go out, they urinate, they defecate. So that's a positive going back into the soil. If we were at the point where we were cutting silage every year on the same field, we would have to use a chemical fertiliser. That's the traditional, seeing it now as a traditional way, I don't see it as a traditional way, but you'd have to put in fertiliser to make that grass grow. The same with the, the crops. So you end up with an inch of fertile ground. There's no worms anymore. The worms are gone. Because the habitat is destroyed. I mean, I sat at a slow food event about soil fertility. And I sat with my mouth open for two hours. This lad was on about soil and he was on about little micro-risers and all the way up and he described it as a party. This is a party that is self-sustaining. But then if you throw your chemical fertiliser on it, it's like throwing cocaine into a party. That's how he described it. The micro-risers die off and you have a whole, a whole link on over the food chain. So these bugs that are now snorting coke chemical fertilizer they have to keep getting it otherwise they're dead and it goes right up into the earthworm and then the earthworm there's periods of time when the, the soil is so bad the earthworms die off I've sat at home after four or five weeks of dry weather and it starts to rain and the pigs are out all night long eating bugs and worms because the worms the worms travel up through the soil they come to the top the pigs know that. So our soil health is good from that point of view. But we, we're still inputting into the ground. We're not taking from it. Is soil health a problem, generally speaking, in Ireland? Massive. Is it? Massive. You know, I mean, to be fair, the lad that we, we buy the wheat and barley from, he, he, he hired a girl about four years ago. And it was, it was well, you could argue it was, with, it was a necessity, but I, I, I saw it as foresight. She's a soil nutritionist. And she goes out and she'll test your soil. So she's a quad bike with sat nav and soil tests and the whole lot. She'll map all your farm. And she'll come back and tell you straight out whether your soil is good, bad, or indifferent. Mm. And lads that are constantly growing cereals in the same field for the last 20 years, they don't know how to trouble. They see it, the field is dead. It might as well be a field of carpet. So what she's doing is she's telling them to. Plant radish, plant mustard, get the humus back into the soil, and it will come back. But that means that they have to spend money. So 20 years ago, they were getting four and a half tons to the acre. They're getting three tons to the acre now, two and a half tons to the acre, with the same inputs. So her argument is, go out, spend it now, or you have to spend double in four or five years' time. So these lads, they, they're not selling any more straw. They'll plough the straw back into the ground. And they'll set radish and they'll set mustard. And when that comes up, they'll plow that back into the ground. So it's, it's come, to, I think, it's come, the pendulum has swung that these lads have realised that if they want to keep going, they're going to have to look after the soil. And if soil is poor, if the, if the health is low, how does that affect the, the consumer's health? Well, and at another, I said at another slow food event one night about how good is 
it was, I can't remember what it was. It was, it was about nutrition, the nutritional value of food. And there was a couple of bullet points. And one I'll always remember was a tomato. A tomato in 1965 was hard to get. But a tomato in 1965, if you ate a tomato then, and you ate a tomato now, you would have to eat six tomatoes now to get the same nutritional value of that tomato in 1965. So what I, I don't know what it's down to. Is it down to chemical fertilizers? Like I know tomatoes are grown all year round now and they're tasteless. You know, my mother grows tomatoes. You know, if you eat them, you can taste the summer off them. You're eating the sun, mm. the goodness. Like last year, I used to go down to Ballymaloo once a week and we were working with the tomatoes most weeks that we were there for the time that they were that they were growing and things, and it was like, you could eat it like an apple. It was yeah. so tasty. Yeah. And it's so red, and it's like, you could eat the whole lot of it. There was no hard bits. It was just all sweet. If you ate one of those with a good cheese inside the sandwich, you'd be gone for four or five hours. So, you know, people are out trying to, I don't know, you know, a lot of it is down to the seasonality of it as well. You know, we're eating tomato sandwiches in November. We shouldn't be doing it, in my view. It shouldn't be done. But it's possible that the uh, decreased quality of the soil is producing less nutritious foods. Absolutely. Which yeah. is then we're eating, we're getting less nutrition and absolutely. therefore yeah. could potentially be less healthy because of that. Yeah, absolutely. Without a shadow of a doubt. So I heard a rumour going around that when you go out for food that you mostly eat vegetarian. Yeah, I don't true. eat I don't eat meat that I don't rare. That's one rule I have. Um, my attitude is trust nobody. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I mean, you see, I don't know. You see, butchers select sausages. The butcher made them, but where did the pork come from? That's you know. You need to go right back. You need to get back to the man who produced it. You know, there's like you go to a restaurant or whatever, and it's so and so's beef. So and so's a butcher. He has no cattle. So. The food, look, the food industry, as far as I'm concerned, is just, it's a joke. It's all a backslap and exercise for restaurateurs and chefs. You know, it's it should be, if you're rare on beef, on that menu should be endless beef. Up on the board, this week we've Hammersley's beef from Tipperary. And then next week, they don't have any beef, so it should be Martin Conroy's or... You know, that's the way it shouldn't be a butcher's beef. Butcher's only sourcing it from the next one you can get it from. Go right back to the source. I need fish. You know, right times of the year I need fish, but um No, if I'm out if I'm out eating it and I won't eat. I won't eat meat. That's the way it is. That's interesting because interesting because I know um <laughs> you have a few thoughts on the, the whole concept of veganism, which is very popular these days. So how does that sit? How does veganism sit in the sort of upraising um, vegan lifestyles and vegan diets sit with you as a as a as a meat producer? Um, well, people say that I'm almost vegetarian, which I think is fine, you know. But we, the human race, eats far too much meat. Far too much meat. People, kids are going out eating chicken rolls twice a day, and that chicken is not good chicken. It hasn't had a good life. It hadn't a good debt, in my opinion. And it was fed food to grow it so quick it couldn't support its own legs. So I won't support that industry. I would just forget it. 
know, these lads are not making money. Do something else with your time. But if, in my view, if we refuse to sell a suckling pig, we've been asked countless times, and we, the animal deserves to live its life, a good life, and in my view, to support that species, the only way to save it, the only way to save a saddleback pig is to eat it. Because putting them in a zoo, they tried it. There was pigs above in Belfast Zoo. Our first sow, she was a Babel sow, came from Belfast Zoo, where they were on concrete. They didn't breed. They were the height of trouble. And a friend of ours in Northern Ireland got her out of there, put her in pig. We bought some young from her. And um, I'm, I'm, all I'm saying is, what are you going to do with all the animals? George Monbeer, or whatever his name is, over in England, he wants the whole country to rewild, to go back to the wild. The thing to remember is if you leave a grass field, go wild. It's not going to stay growing grass. The grass will grow, but the, all these meadows, these summer meadows have to be grazed. Because if you don't, ditches will come out with briars, eight, ten feet a year, and you will have a field that you can't even drive into. So rewilding is, in my view, a non-runner. You know, you can argue that the upland, which is probably correct, upland sheep grazing is too dense. You know, it probably is. You soil devastation in the uplands and whatever. That needs to be managed. But as far as grassland goes, Ireland grows some very, the best grass in the world. So what are we going to do with it? It's interesting, actually, it was slightly off topic. Topic if anybody's seen Casement Park recently, they'll see what happens when you leave the grass untended because there's trees growing in the middle of the field now. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it's a really interesting uh, concept because actually what I had just in preparation for this, I did a little bit of Googling on some of the most common arguments in favour of a fully vegan diet. And one of the most common arguments is that it's better for the animals like the animal it's better for animal welfare if we're not killing them all the time but what you're saying there is actually it's essential to keep certain breeds of animals going that they're there and they have a purpose as a food source and that's what keeps them that's what keeps them alive as such is that what you're saying kind of that's what i'm saying i mean we tried to we we bought um meat chickens eight years ago i suppose seven years ago and there's two types of breeds you can buy now. One is a Ross Cobb, and the other one is a Hubbard. They're the only two types of meat breed. If you want to buy a meat chicken, so you ring up any hatchery. That's the two types you, that's the two choices you have. So we bought 40 of them. So we have all breed hens at home. We've Light Sussex, and we've Marin, and we've, they, 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 they have eggs in the spring. They disappear into the weeds or nettles and the pit and the fowl pen, and they come out three weeks later and they have chicks. And they grow and that's it. And we, we collect the eggs off them and we do eat the eggs. But anyway, we got 40 of these meat birds and uh, they had a shed to winter. They had grass to graze. They had food and water when they wanted it. They did not take their head out of the food all day long. When they'd had enough, they fell asleep with their head in the food. They grew so fast, and that was with a non-GM diet. There was no GM. We were feeding them no GM. They grew so fast 
They couldn't walk. So when they were ready, they weren't all ready together. So we dispatched a few of them for ourselves. But before we could get through them, they were all dying of heart failure. They were too weak. So I have no notion of ever again buying one of those birds. We have birds at home. If we have marron cocks at home, they grow up and they get saucy and they put on a bit of meat. Noreen will pull their necks and she'll eat them. Marron cocks, marron birds are not that popular. But if you put a marron bird up in a supermarket shelf, someone wouldn't buy it. Because they don't have the double-breasted Ross Cobb or the Hubbard. So they'd be smaller? They'd be tiny. So the consumer is being led down the road of this is a good chicken, the Ross Cobb. The chicken demands GM diet. It demands it's kept inside because it's... We've seen them in the rain. They're, they do go out. They since that's rain and they haven't a sense of the brains to go back into the shade. You have to hunt them back in. When it starts raining, you have to hunt them back out. We just said no. We'll never again keep those type of birds. The only way to keep, in my view, the Dexters and the Longhorn cattle and Saddlebacks and all these old breeds, the only way to keep those alive and keep them sustained is to eat them. Make them commercially viable to people who are prepared to pay the price and accept that they're getting a product that, in my view, had a better life, got fed better, had a longer life. It wasn't mutilated, you know, it wasn't castrated or tails docked or teeth broken or whatever. And it was dispatched properly. And you're keeping the line of you're keeping, the breeding going? You're keeping it all going. So I have a few more things that came up whenever I was doing my, my bit of research on the on the vegan uh, diet that I wanted to get your opinion on. So can I throw a few things out at you that come up as popular? Arguments in favour of it that uh, a vegan diet is better for the environment? Not at all. Not at all. Not at all. If you can eat a, a local vegan diet, oh, by all means, you're doing a good job. But any vegan thing I've picked up in a, in a supermarket contains either almonds. So almonds are generally like California is a huge almond country. They've gone down the road of training aquifers to feed the almond plantations with, for water. The bees that they use to pollinate them, they're normally kept up in the northern, northern states and brought in by truck. The pollen that they gather from the almonds is taken. The honey is taken. They're, ke- they're fed corn fructus. I've had bees. I know what I'm talking about. I lost my bees. That's another day. It wasn't due to me, in my opinion. Um, the, 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 the honey is taken and sold. The bees are put back into cold storage at three or four degrees inside the cold room where they're put into semi-hibernated stairs. They are hibernating. And while they're hibernating, in their winter, their artificial winter, they're fed corn fructus, which is, I don't know, 50 or 100 times more addictive than sugar. These lads, the, the beekeepers are, are, are all burst, they're gone burst, financially destroyed. The almonds are no longer sustainable because the aquifers are drained. There's a drought in California, all these 
Wildfires, the kind of even of water below the fires, it'll learn grow almonds. So that's the almonds. Palm oil. I don't need galaxy bears. I don't need Doritos. I don't need any of that. Because, I mean, they're burning rainforest. They're burning and uh, orangutan in there. So Google it. There's orangutans walking out of the forest on fire, looking for people to put the fires out to help them. There's no such thing as sustainable palm oil. And even if there was, if you if you have sustainable palm oil in Bolivia, what are you going to do with it? You have to put it into a container. You have to ship it to Ireland or ship it somewhere, process it, put it back into another container, ship it here. What's the cost? Environmentally, what's the cost of getting that all the way here for you to have your vegan ingredient? So you have palm oil, you have almonds, you have all the, I could go on and on and on. What about the argument that uh, by staying away from animal products that you're reducing the carbon footprint because you're not, say, because of the carbon dioxide produced by cattle? Well, Conor Hammersley sent me a very good article the other day about... It was Nigan Farm. Nigan Farm, I can't even it. I follow him on Twitter. But they did a study. And they did a study on grass-based diet. And grass-based beef is less than 2% of the methane produced of all cattle. Less than 2%. It produces 2% less of, you know, of all the beef. So you have a feedlot beef, which is fed grains. It's unsustainable. They're fed, it's an all-grain diet. They have to feed them medicines to keep them going. The gut eventually gives up the cow and they're sent off at 14 months ready for slaughter, which is half the, way, half the age and the same weight of an, of an Irish pasture-based animal. So they, their argument is... If you're feeding grass, you're not ploughing the ground. If you plough the ground, you're releasing all this, you're releasing all this carbon dioxide, you're releasing all the nitrogen. It's all gone into the air. Whereas if you're not doing that, the carbon dioxide is in the ground, the animal is eating the grass, it does produce methane, but only of the whole cattle industry, it's less than 2%. Whereas growing crops, to feed those cattle, so if you're if you're ploughing for barley and soy and all that crack, that's where the methane comes in as well. So I'll always go for a grass-based local diet. Like which is really the opposite of what the most popular source of beef, say in America, would be, which would be mass-produced and like they would like clearing yeah. massive amounts of land or forest to keep those yeah. cattle. I was in Canada there for a couple of weeks with my son. And uh, you go into a restaurant and you'd sit down. You'd have two choices. You'd have a steak. Or you'd have, a, say, a buffalo burger or something. Like buffaloes, you can't. They're fed grass. They're all grazed. A buffalo steak is $30. A standard steak was $9. So that is the... That's the problem the consumer has. If he wants to eat steak every day and he eats a $9 steak, say he eats a $9 steak three times a week, that's 30 quid. He eats a buffalo steak three times a week, it's 100 quid. So people are going to buy the cheapest. That's the problem. He shouldn't be eating it. I don't agree with eating cheap meat. Good meat is not cheap and meat should be good and not cheap. 
so that kind of leads me on to the next the next probably most popular argument in term in support of a sort of vegan diet is that eating so, uh, food sources that are not animal based is better for your health I don't know I've 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 two customers I've I've one customer they're a doctor and they're vegan and she has four small kids and she feeds them more sausages for years and I didn't know she was vegan until one day she bought sausage rolls sausage baps for the kids and I put a sausage in a tray and I handed it to her and she said I, I, I actually don't eat meat I'm vegan so I said why can I ask I'm not asking you why you're vegan that's your choice I have no problem with anyone being vegan that's their choice but I asked why does she why are the kids not vegan and she said in her opinion as a doctor when those kids are at the, the, the huge level of growth up to up to pre, up to and beyond puberty she is of the opinion that they need masses of good protein and the vegan diet in her opinion not mine in her opinion does not supply enough good protein for that brain so that's why she uh, that's why she does it so I spoke to her about plant based proteins and, and whatever and she said no in her opinion she was a meat eater until her 20s and she decided to go vegan she wasn't always a vegan and she um, she said she wasn't going to force that diet on her kids that when they are of the age they can decide for themselves they know their mother is vegan but they, they like eating the sausage baps on a Saturday morning or that's so that's a professional that's not some pig farmer making a, a rash claim that is what that's what she said to me that's why her four kids eat sausages but good sausages you know um, I know a few people who are vegan and some of them choose to have a vegan diet because of the fact that they feel that it's more sustainable you obviously addressed a few of those points already but is eating local locally produced food seem to be a way more sustainable way of um, eating than relying on products that come from the other side of the world yeah, there's a lot of local rubbish out there as well you know there's, there's a lot of local stuff that I wouldn't eat there's a lot of local eggs I wouldn't eat you know I, I eat eggs from two producers that's it one is me on <laughs> you know because I know I know that the that the, 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 the hens are eating nettles and eating bugs and eating grass and, and I crack the egg and I know that the reason that yolk is as orange as it is is because of the grass not because of some dye in the food so people need to get back to the producer you know they need to where's that steak from if it's from the back of a van forget it you know, who, who slaughtered it where was it home like personally speaking, being um, a regular goer to the farmer's market has been a big help from that point of view because you can actually speak to the people who are producing the food. So I feel like that, that would probably be a good starting point for anybody who's interested. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, um, there are a lot of good butchers out there. But in my experience, the best butchers are those with a slaughterhouse out the back. Because they... Look, at Christmas time, you can go into a butcher and order your Christmas ham. They can tell you what they want. 
you know, and you'll probably believe them. But if you go to the likes of us, with Christmas week, I mean, for every second person is looking for a Christmas ham. We have a, we have a finite amount of pigs. A pig has only two back legs. And that's it. And people think we're being, you know, we are what we are, but that's it. We look after our regular customers, and that's all we have. So if you want a Christmas ham, we're not going to be able to give it to you. So things like Christmas, people lose the plot. They go in, they buy turkeys and... Like, for a few quid more, try and get a turkey from a lad who reared it himself. Did a batch of 40 turkeys. Support him. Pay 10 quid more for the turkey. Pay 15 quid more for the turkey. You know, people lose the plot anyway. Just once a year, if you can say, even if it's a Christmas dinner, you know, the turkey's from this, the ham is from there, or the roast beef is from there, the potatoes are from so-and-so belly cotton, and the veg is from so-and-so finance. Fair play to you. You've made a big difference. I remember last year, on my way back to Belfast for Christmas, I met Conor Hammersley on the motorway, and he... Give me the turkey, but he was after taking a picture of it a couple weeks before saying, Here, that's the, this is the one you're getting for Christmas yeah. this year. Yeah, that's it. Like, there's another issue that I probably I feel like it's maybe a, a, an issue, maybe for, for a different chat at a different time because we could be here for the whole evening if we get into that. But one time a few months ago, whenever I was home at Bel- in Belfast, I did a little survey from the front door of my mum's house to the city centre and took a little tally of all the businesses that were there. And within that three mile stretch, there were 50 takeaways. And even in Ona, I, I was up there a couple of weeks ago and there's a few more after opening, which is like, that's a massive challenge for people's health. And to it's a massive challenge to um, overcome if we're going to get people to, to eat healthier because that fast food is so cheap, so readily available and so fast. But I think that's an issue that maybe we can come back to at a different time uh, because otherwise we'll be here all night. <laughs> It's just an uh, an interesting point to put in there. I've got a quick fire round. They want to want to throw at you there. <coughs> yep. Uh, so you can go into as much or as little detail as you like on these ones. But what advice would you give to the ten years younger version of yourself? Um, the twenty year version of me would have said, "Do it now." I'm sorry I didn't do this earlier. Um, that's. I have one regret, and that is that I didn't do this 30 years ago. But 30 years ago, I probably couldn't have done it because the farmers' markets weren't as popular. Like Cork has some seriously good farmers' markets. So that probably did it at the same time, but I should have done it maybe five years earlier. Just go for it. I'm sorry I didn't go for it earlier. Who would be a person that you would um, be inspired by? Um, I don't know. Three people. Three people. Four people, I suppose. One is my grandfather. Two is a man called John Seymour. He was an Englishman who wrote a lot of books. I think I have one there. Yeah. It's the uh, sustainable, kind of sustainable sort of yeah. farming stuff like that. That's the one. He wrote a kind of a Bible to all smallholders. And that's the one I can see here. It's a complete guide to self sufficiency. My wife got that book as a child. And she'd say it ruined her life, but it didn't. Um, it made her decide that she, that is what she wanted to do. She wanted to get right. It, as a chef, she still saw ingredients in the place she was working that she wouldn't have been happy with. 
So she just go right back to the start, which she's done. And uh, the Dorina has been a great help to us, Dorina Allen. So, you know, the unseen work that she does for small producers is incredible. And her energy, you know, you'll meet her when you're, it's a wet old day and, and it's, you're tired. And it's like, oh, I could, you know, I was at home. I mean, in five minutes, she's like a tornado. She just drags you along with her energy. And uh, I just think she's fantastic. She should be running the country. And I've been down to a few of the slow food um, talks that they host down there in the cookery school. It's worthwhile for people to check that out and Absolutely. get down there. Absolutely. I mean, I've been to four of them in the last year that, in my opinion, were jaw-dropping stuff, like, you know. The one that I, the one that I was at, it was the best of... The best talk I've ever seen. It was that includes any TED talks I've watched. It was um, that you are what your mother eats, from a medical history point of view. It was, it was an incredible talk. You know, if anybody anybody out there should get on the slow food mailing list and go down there, it's only six quid to sit in there for an hour, or two hours listening to someone who knows what they're talking about. It's incredible. What's your favourite thing about living in Cork? The people. There's some cracking people in Cork. You know, that's what makes Cork. And if you could change one thing about Cork, what would it be? The weather. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I think you may have already alluded to this, but have you got a favourite book? I don't read books anymore. I used to read books. I don't read books anymore. I don't really. John Seymour's book, I've read it from cover to cover on countless occasions. You know, it's everything from making beer, plowing the field, growing stuff, making bread. You know, the man was a legend. He was, if anyone knows, like, he, he was one of the people who stopped Monsanto's beat trials in the 80s. He was one of the Nuras people who were threatened with jail. They, they pulled that beat up out of the ground or they were lambasted by the media, the Irish media. That was GM beat. And he just said, not here, lads. You know, so that book, if anybody has any kid that's thinking of growing stuff in a pot, give them that book for Christmas. It'll change their lives. What's uh, coming up in the next year or so for yourself and for Woodside Farm? I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I was 50 last week, so. Happy birthday. I'm kind of, I don't know. I'd love to see the next generation take it on. You know, I don't think it'll. I don't know. I don't know how it can get any bigger. It's the the labour is the. That's the restricting, part. You know, it's not as if we're. Just banging out sausages at a farmers market that we buy in, you know. And if we're busy, we order more. It's it's we have X amount per week. And that's it. A pig is as big as a pig is going to be, and, you know, that's it. We we don't sell pork chops anymore. They're all cured for bacon because. People love our rations. So, um, I mean, there's three sides to the business. One is the farm, which is the most important one. The second is the labour between the pig and the packet. And the third in is the markets. You know, so it's... If it, uh, Noreen would never let anyone look after the farm, only us. Uh, as far as probably get someone in to do the butchering and stuff with us, but the markets, 
I've seen lads employing people at markets um, as good as they can be they're not the person with the story you know they don't know the answers so and people love to hear the answers to the questions I, I love I love these people who think they have a right sidewinder of a question and it's it's one I've been asked a thousand times before you know so <clears throat> I don't know it's a public you know people like to see us at the market I've we've myself and Ori went to the market or we're away from the market for I don't know maybe we've missed three markets and uh, people just walk past the stall if I'm not there even if it was our son they come back then the next week they buy twice as much you weren't here all last week hmm. we were my son was here yeah but you weren't here so people are funny you know so I don't know where it's going to go but in my opinion there should be one of us in every town in Ireland last question before I let you go how can people keep in touch follow your progress or come and get some of your meat well I've Facebook I, I, I don't have Facebook on my phone now so I haven't posted on Facebook for a while but we have a Facebook page we have a page on Twitter and uh, Instagram that's Woodside Farm Pork Woodside Farm Pork and Instagram um, Woodside underscore farm on Twitter and Woodside Farm Free Range Pork and Bacon on Facebook and every Tuesday Thursday and Saturday we're at the markets Tuesday Tuesday Wilton. Wilton. Thursdays, Man Point and Middleton and Douglas Farmers Market on Saturdays. You know, we we'll all, like, on Tuesdays we don't have cold produce because it's, it's early. It's too early in the week for us to have produce. On Thursdays then we've, we've everything from nose to tail. And, uh, like, our sausages don't contain any nitrates, so they only last three days. And still people come along and they'll order you know, there's a lot of stuff that, you know, a lot of our customers have special needs kids and uh, they have a huge amount of stuff they can't eat. It affects them, their behaviour. So uh, Noreen regularly makes sausages for people. But um, we've one lad, I know his, his son has a huge problem with iron. He can't get iron into his system. And uh, his the iron tablets make his stomach really bad. He gets... So really, really bad stomach cramps. And uh, Noreen makes sausages for that kid with um, pig's liver, our own pig's liver. Just a tiny bit in it. And uh, like we don't feed heavy metals in the feed, so the livers are just like claret, claret jug. It's just really, really rich, whiny colour. And um, that kid's liver, or that kid's iron count has risen without him even knowing it. Because he's not on medication, he's just... He has a sausage every second day. That's all he does. And um, his stomach, his system seems to metabolise the iron. And his level, his iron level has come up to an acceptable level. So that, like that thing, though, when we do sausages for people, and, you know, stuff like that. So people were small enough to care. That's the way I look at it. You know. That brings the mind a quote that we can probably finish up on by Hippocrates: "Let food be thy medicine, and medicine be thy food." Absolutely. I said that to a man. I said that to a man a long time ago. I said, you have two choices in life. You can give the likes of me your money or you can give it to a doctor 10 years later. And that's it, like, you know. Eat well. And as I said, when we started off, if we look after the pig, the pig will look after us.
thank you for taking the time to listen to the Rebel Matters podcast today. If you enjoyed the show, please share it on your social media and with your friends and give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. This helps big time with the ongoing progress at Rebel Matters. Don't forget to check out the rest of the episodes on acli.ie, A-C-L-A-I.ie. And if you're in the market for some top drawer personal training, book a complimentary consultation through the same website and we'll help you achieve whatever goal you have in mind. As usual, music on the podcast was by Keela and you can check out all the tour dates and more from Keela on their website www.keela.ie k-i-l-a.ie I was Gajian Kerala Kara Kini Fiore Thank you